Let's take a moment to pray together now. Let's pray. Father God, for this time that we have together here with one another in your presence, we give you our thanks. Thank you that our paths have led us here this morning from whatever we've been doing over this last week. And we pray that this time would be fruitful for each one of us as we offer you our worship, as we reflect on life, as we receive your word. Prepare us to go back out into the world, into the lives that we lead, knowing that you go with us and that you have work for us to do. So hear our prayers, because we ask them all in Christ's name. Amen. There's a story about a rich old lady who couldn't find a church that was pure enough for her. So she decided that she would start her own denomination. But after several years of falling out with and excommunicating other members, her congregation was down to just two people, her and her housemaid, Mary. And one day a reporter came from the local newspaper. He came to interview and he said, Madam, do you really believe that you and your housemaid are the only people who are going to be saved? And she leaned over into him and she whispered, well, between you and me, son, I'm not so sure about Mary. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Someone asks Jesus as he makes his way around the Jewish villages of Palestine, teaching and listening and healing. It was a live question in Jesus' day. The rabbis, the theologically educated men who taught in these communities, all had different opinions about it. And you could say it's still a live question today too, because behind that question, what we're really asking is, is God good? Can we trust him? What do we have to do to get in tune with him? And I read this passage a few weeks ago in my own devotional reading, and it really got me thinking, and I wanted to open up some of that with you this morning to see what God might be saying to us through this exchange. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? The questioner asks. But what would a first century Jew have in his or her mind as they asked that question? Now, it might be that it's a genuine question about the wideness of God's mercy. Many of the religious leaders of Jesus' day taught that non-Jews were outside the scope of God's love. Was that true? Is it just we Jews who are in Jesus, or, or is there hope for the Gentiles as well? That could have been the sense of the question. How wide is God's mercy? Does it extend beyond Israel, or is it just for Israel? So it could have that flavor, the question. Or it could be more of an internal discussion within Judaism. It could be that it's a, a question about morality within the Jewish community. You know, we're all trying to keep the law, Jesus, as Jews, but most of us aren't doing too well at it. Is it just the very scrupulous, like the Pharisees, who are acceptable to God, or do the rest of us have some hope as well? That could be the tone of the question. It could be an internal discussion about Judaism. But going a wee bit further, we might even ask what a first century Jew 
would mean by being saved anyway. That word has come to have particular resonances within Christian understanding. It's come to mean getting to heaven when you die. But we can't read that back into the text because first century Jews didn't think of salvation in that way. For them, salvation was something that happened now as we lived faithful lives and experienced God's blessing. And it was something that would be consummated in the future when God finally set the world to rights on the day of judgment. So for a first century Jew, salvation had very earthly as, very, as well as very spiritual connotations. And you might never have noticed this before, but in his teaching, Jesus doesn't speak nearly as much about heaven as he does about the kingdom of God. Many years ago, and it's been a useful exercise to do, I took all the words of Jesus from the four Gospels and dumped them into uh, a program called Wordle, which produces word pictures. And the bigger the word, the more frequently it occurs in the text that you drop into the program. So here's a graphic of Jesus' words in Luke's Gospel. Now, you can see kingdom just there beneath God. It's a word that occurs very, very often. The word heaven is just to the right, above and to the right of the word man. So in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is speaking more about the kingdom, actually, than he is about heaven. And if we go to Mark's Gospel, it's exactly the same. Kingdom, you can see in the far right, about two-thirds of the way down. Heaven is right down at the bottom in the middle. And kingdom, again, is much, much larger. Which should give us pause for thought. Because if faith is all about getting to heaven when we die, why doesn't that feature a lot more significantly in what Jesus actually has to say? That's a discussion maybe for another day. The truth is we can't know heaven this side of death. But by the grace of God, we can know something of the kingdom. Because the kingdom is everywhere that God's reign is acknowledged and God's will is being done. And that is what the Sermon on the Mount was all about. Urging us to live by the values of the kingdom now so that our lives and our communities become little outposts of the kingdom. Advanced parties modeling something of where God has taken his world. And one possible reading of today's text, one that's put forward by Tom Wright, is that Jesus is saying to the religious establishment of the day, this is your last chance. I've shown you the priorities of the kingdom of God, and if you start to live that way, if you pass through the narrow door into that way of being, then there's hope for you. But if not, you're going to find yourself shut out because you're no longer in tune with God's purposes for the world. And for that kind of talk, they killed him. He was just too much of a risk to the system. So that's a wee bit of the background to today's passage. But what did it have to say to Jesus' hearers, and what does it say to us this morning. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved, he's asked. And the sharp-eyed among you, 
will have noticed that Jesus doesn't give a yes or a no answer. Can we see the text there, please? Next slide. Thank you. Um, Jesus does what he often does, and he turns the question right back on to the questioner, which is his favorite verbal judo move. He's not going to discuss how many and who might be saved, and instead, with laser-guided precision, he focuses on the issue of the questioner's salvation. What do they need to do to be saved? And this is the text here that we need. He says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. And there's so much in that verse that could keep us going for the rest of the sermon. He begins, make every effort. And that's the word agonizesta in the Greek, from which we get our words agony and agonize. You might think of a woman in labor going through the agony of delivering her child, or an athlete committing to a punishing training schedule to try and develop the strength so he or she can be a real contender in the games. That's the sense of the word that Jesus uses. So once again, as we have been so many times over the last few years, we're coming back to the idea of training and effort, the things that make for growth and advancement. There are no shortcuts to maturity in Christ. If we're genuinely seeking it, we have to commit to the disciplines of our faith, to prayer, reading, worship, fellowship, service, and that takes effort. But you know what they say in so many different walks of life? No pain, no gain. It takes effort to enter through the narrow door and commitment. And when I think of narrow doors, two things come immediately to mind. The tiny gate in the walls of Jerusalem, which was known as the Eye of the Needle, it was so small the camels and donkeys had to be stripped of everything that they were carrying in order to squeeze through. Now, of course, there's no photograph of that. This was the nearest I could come up with in Google Images. But the other one is the main door into the holiest site, in the, one of the holiest sites in the Christian world, the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, which is so tiny that almost everyone has to bend down in order to get in. So perhaps Jesus is saying that to get through this narrow door into the kingdom, you have to lose some cargo. Pride, maybe. Anger. Self-will. Possessions. Status. You'll have to humble yourself, literally lower yourself to gain access. Maybe the door is narrow to make sure that only folk with the right attitude get in those who are humble enough to admit that they need a Savior, they need a God. But the Greek actually allows for another interpretation, which might be even more relevant here. The point of the door's narrowness might be that only one person at a time can enter in. You can't just walk in en masse as part of a crowd getting swept along. No, the doorway is narrow. You have to squeeze in. You have to make the effort yourself. 
Perhaps the line, many I tell you will try to enter and will not be able to, is about just that. Folk trying to get in as part of a crowd, all squeezing and jostling in front of the door, but actually nobody making it through. Trying to get through as a group doesn't work. And given what follows, I think there might be some truth in that for, the, for us this morning in terms of the text, but also in terms of our own experience. Go way back into the history of Israel and you quickly find that their chosenness as the people of God was not so much for privilege as for service. Right from the beginning, they were told that they were being blessed so that they could be a blessing. The other nations weren't cast off by God or beyond the pale, but were to be drawn to Israel's God by the quality of Israel's life. But by Jesus' time, that sense of a wider calling had more or less disappeared. Subconsciously, many had come to believe that they were chosen because they were special in and of themselves. They were simply the best, better than all the rest. It's the gospel of Tina Turner. They began to assume too much. That simply being a Jew meant that you were okay. It really didn't matter too much how you lived. It was all down to ethnicity. Well, we're Jews, we're fine. And here Jesus is tearing that point of view to shreds. When they knock on the door trying to get in, the householder refuses to open up for them. No, I don't know you or where you come from. But we ate and drank with you and you, you taught in our streets, they say. But the householder isn't impressed. And the door stays closed. The folk in the story made a serious error that religious folk of all persuasions in all ages continue to make to this very day. They assume that you can have faith by proxy. The simply being in the faith environment, having your name on the roll, being part of the crowd confers faith when it doesn't. It doesn't. Let me tell you a wee story to illustrate that. A few years ago, I took the funeral of Aberdeen legend Teddy Scott who was Fergie's right-hand man for many years here at Aberdeen. And it was a big deal. It was at Ellen Parish Church. I was covering there. It was a big deal. All the great and the good were there to pay their respects. Alec McLeish, Stuart Milne, Craig Brown, Willie Miller spoke very movingly of his tutelage under Teddy. And Sir Alec Ferguson gave a tribute too, during which he swore like a navvy until he remembered he was in a church and turned around to me and apologized. I think I'm still one of the few people in the world who's had an apology from Sir Alec Ferguson. And afterwards, we went to the new inn, and the place was hoaching with people. And needless to say, lots of folk were trying to get a word or a photo with Fergie, and I am guess that lots of them were old friends from his time here in Aberdeen, and he seemed to be enjoying catching up with them. Now, let's imagine that Sammy, Willie, Davy, and Johnny were at the funeral, and they came back for the tea, but they'd never met or spoken to Sir Alec in his life. How would the great man feel, say, ten years later, 
If these four worthies turned up at his front door one day expecting admission and to be entertained by Mrs. Ferguson while Sir Alec regaled them with well-chosen stories from his days in football. My guess is he would see them off the premises with a few more choice words. But we ate and drank with you, Alec. We heard you talking at Teddy Scott's funeral. Maybe so, he might say. But that doesn't give you the right to come here and expect to be let in. I don't even know you. They've mistaken being in the same space as him for having a relationship with him. They've confused knowing about him to actually knowing him. There's no real relationship there. So why would they expect to be invited into his home on the most tenuous of grounds? Now, of course, you can't push the metaphor too far because God knows us. Psalm 139 says, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. God knows all about us. That's a given. But the question here is, are we in relationship with him? Relationships are a two-way street. Have we made an effort to get to know him for ourselves? Or are we kidding ourselves that because we're about the church a fair bit and keep our noses clean most of the time, we're in good standing with him? Are we making the same mistake that Israel made in Jesus' day? Thinking that because we're part of the right group, we have an automatic in with God. And looking around the church today with a membership of about 320 I wonder if that's what's in the minds of the people who aren't here today, at least the ones who are able-bodied and could be here. Jesus is telling his hearers then and now, and to be honest, it's really that the rest of the membership out there who need to hear this, probably not you, but Jesus is telling his hearers that it doesn't work that way. You can't catch faith by osmosis. You don't really know someone until you're genuinely in relationship with them. God is waiting for us to open up our lives to him. He's done everything that needed to be done in Jesus to reconcile us to himself. Out of his immense love, he has offered us his friendship at great cost to himself. And if we snub that offer, if we keep putting it off and making excuses, should we be surprised if God finally gives us what we want? To be left alone. I never knew you, he'll say. I tried, but you didn't respond. That good old biblical image of weeping and gnashing of teeth isn't really about punishment. And I think in many instances, it's not about punishment in the New Testament. It's about the truth finally coming home and the remorse that you feel when you realize that your choices have left you on the wrong side of the door.
the Jews of Jesus' day, believed that their ancestry, their blood ties to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would get them a fast pass into the kingdom. No, says Jesus. Your ancestors got in because they knew me for themselves. And the Gentiles you see flooding in from north, south, east, and west, they're getting in because they know me too. It's all about that relationship with the living God. But then at the end of the the passage we heard this morning, he says something that leaves me with a glimmer of hope for the sake of those outside the door. He says, many who are last will be first, and many who are first will be last. He doesn't say many who are last will be in, and many who are first will be out. And that seems to hold out the possibility that this story may not finally be about who's in and who's out, but about the order in which we gain entry into the kingdom. Those who close with God's offer of friendship and forgiveness in Christ are in straight away, whoever they are. Those who ignore his love or presume on it impersonally are left outside, perhaps until they come to their senses and make their personal response, straggling in at the very last when they fully expected to be among the first through the door. It's just a thought. Test it and leave it if you don't think it's correct. But the lesson that this story brings us this morning is very clear. It's about the great recovery that we are having to make in our time. We're having to relearn that genuine faith isn't about having your name on a church roll, taking vows that you don't really intend to ever keep. It's not merely about joining an institution. It's about being in a living relationship with a living God, committing time and effort to that friendship so that it deepens and strengthens over the years of your life. Pursuing God for no other reason than what you've come to know of Him makes you want to know more. I've always loved the ancient prayer which says, God of time and eternity, if I love thee for hope of heaven, then deny me heaven. If I love thee for fear of hell, then give me hell. But if I love thee for thyself alone, then give me thyself alone. The pass that gets you into the kingdom isn't the religion you happen to associate with. It's not belonging to a particular ethnic group. It's the love that makes you want to pursue God in the first place so that he's no longer a distant stranger, but a close friend. That's what Jesus is saying to us this morning in the story of the narrow door. Amen.